Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, another instalment of The Comics Question with Bernard Calio. For this episode, Bernard spoke with Steve Mushin, an industrial designer, illustrator and inventor, and writer and illustrator of Ultra Wild, an illustrated science and design book about tackling climate change with hilarious engineering ideas and extreme rewilding. Ultrawild has been created in collaboration with experts ranging from climate scientists and marine biologists to mechanical engineers and soil scientists. The book contains over 100 ludicrous-sounding, scientifically possible inventions illustrated with over 1,000 drawings. It's packed with curious facts on everything from how plants and fungi share resources and the soil engineering power of megafauna to insect and mechanical flight, high-tech microbe-powered toilets and the carbon sequestering power of algae. Ultrawild is an optimistic book about creative thinking and the potential for change. Filled with laugh-out-loud design ridiculousness, it aims to empower and excite a new generation of designers, scientists, engineers, and wild thinkers. Here's Bernard Calio and Steve Mushin. I hope you enjoyed their conversation. My name is Bernard Callio, and I am in the corner of the Readings podcast, which I call The Comics Question. And so in The Comics Question corner of the podcast, we talk to comics creators, comics makers, comics builders, graphic novelists, to find out what makes their comics tick. And I am beyond excited today. I'm, 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 I'm proud, I'm thrilled, I'm, I'm overwhelmed to be talking with my friend Stephen Mushin about his new book, Ultra Wild. Welcome, Stephen. Kia ora, Bernard. Great to be on the show. <laughs> Steve is in Wellington in New Zealand. I am in Melbourne, Nam, recording this on the lands of the Wurundjeri people to whom I pay my respects. I want to start the interview by saying, of course, Steve, that you and I, we've spent some time working on this book a few years ago. A number of years ago, Steve said, look, I'm working on this book and you're a comics guy, Bernard. Do you want to come and look at it? And let's have a chat about the comics aspect of it. And so I just wanted to let the listener know that a more than sheer readerly interest in this book. Some of my bones are in its foundations. But I want, first of all, Steve, for you and I to work out what the book is about. The book is, well, it's an audacious plan to rewild every city on earth. That's what it says on the cover. It's ostensibly a book about inventions. There are yes. over a hundred unique inventions in the book, but really it's about rewilding. It's about transforming cities and transforming the entire world into ecosystems, into carbon-sucking ecosystems for all species as fast as humanly and biophysically possible. Rewilding is a term that is still finding its feet in many parts of the world. So over here in Aotearoa and in, uh, in Australia, it's not a word that we use a lot. It's used a lot in Europe and North America and, and in plenty of places. I think it's just such an exciting concept. It's the idea of giving nature a helping hand, so setting up the right conditions for wilderness to return, and then really stepping back and letting nature rebuild itself. So it's different 
to conservation and, and, and to sort of ecosystem restoration and that it, it really focuses on, on allowing nature to, to come back by itself because we find that when nature is allowed to, to come back by itself and to thrive by itself, you get the best outcomes, you get the strongest, most resilient ecosystems. And I think it's such an exciting term, rewilding. Think yeah. of rewilding compared to the t- a term like sustainability. Or conservation. Uh, there's an amazing community of people out there all around the world working on rewilding projects in every country in the world. And it's just such a cool and vibrant and positive thing that's going on. I just, I just love it so much. Yeah, I was reading the other day that bears are coming back into the Pyrenees in France, you know, out of this sort of action, I suppose, or intervention to give space, basically, to the wild and give it oxygen, give it the opportunity, really, not, not, not to asphalt over everything. So in the book, this is a big, big book. It's a large size book, large format book. It's beautiful hardback 80-page manifesto even almost, uh, although it's much more lighthearted than a lot more manifestos, much more fun than a lot of manifestos. It's really saying, you know, because you're a character in the book, Steve. I see you again and again and again. In fact, I counted there's 1,564 Steve Mushins in this book, which is a really interesting coincidence because that's actually the year that Shakespeare was born. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of me in this book. I mean, it's primarily a comedy. I mean, when I, I began this book, I was working as an environmental educator and my... My goal was really to create art that engaged people with some of the more complex aspects of sustainability around climate science and some of the complex issues of of how we get ourselves out of the mess we're in. And so I decided to, to, to write and draw a comedy. And it's a design science comedy, I guess, with me as a as a narrator talking talking the reader through my process of design and invention as I try and solve some of the challenges we face. I love that description, design, science, comedy, and that keys me to think about another aspect of it, and this I remember talking with you about this years ago, was how to get the sense of, because you do quite a bit of presentations for all sorts of audiences, but particularly kids, about having ideas and then designing things out of wild ideas, getting the liveness of that and the playfulness of that sort of tone. And that, I think, is one of the great achievements of the book, Steve, is this sort of sense of it feels conversational and playful. It didn't come naturally to me uh, in terms of doing that in a book form, you know, for many years I've I've run workshops and I've been a facilitator of design events, design thinking events, creative thinking events in universities and schools and with businesses and city councils. And I originally imagined this book as a sketchbook. So I wanted it to be a kind of like a beguiling kind of design artifact that you'd open up and you just sort of try and work out what on earth I was designing. But I I quickly realized that I I really needed to make it kind of graphic novel type format or a comic in order for the reader to really be able to follow what on earth I was going on about, especially because a lot of the ideas are quite complex. They're dealing with issues like carbon sequestration that a lot of people have have a vague understanding about, but really need a sort of helping hand to take them through and explain what on earth this stuff is about. And in order to make it snappy and easy to follow and alluring, it just needed a character to take you, to tell you a story, to lead you by the hand. And so 
I reluctantly put myself in there as a, as a cartoon character. It's been a really joyful experience. I mean, I, I had never created a cartoon before this book, so... <laughs> I, I reckon that what you're talking about, that initial impulse to produce a book which would look like a fantastic imaginative scientist's notebook, if it's going to be a book, we, the readers, need that bridge into that world. And that's what the Steve character in, in the book... He's the in-betweener. Yeah. And look, and hopefully it still functions as a designer sketchbook and that there are plenty of pages that don't have me telling a story. They're just de- they're, they're, they're technical design drawings. They're, they're spreads with big perspective drawings of cities. And, and so I think, well, my hope is that it, it, it still does work as a, it works as a kind of comic and designer's sketchbook. Yes, I, I think it certainly does. And because I think what we get is the sense of this, guy saying, these are my ideas, now let me show you. Not that he says that, like, but that's the, that's the implication all the time, is that, you know, we're in that really interesting space on the page where we're both looking at his face, which says, oh, I had this idea about chickens. And then, you know, the next panel or the next picture or the next half page is, is you know, showing us chickens and, and, and them roosting and pace, the space, the place of the page is the mind of the inventor, which is is our own minds as well. Yeah, it, it, it is essentially the exact process that I've been through in designing all of the inventions in the book. So, so, so what you read me thinking about and what you see me sketching is, is pretty close to the real process. I mean, my background is in design, is in industrial design, and many of these projects... Uh, collaborations with scientists and engineers. And what, what you're seeing on the page is me thinking about and collaborating with others over, trying to nut out how on earth to solve problems. So that's the narrative really, is just, it's just yes. the real world of design. Yes. I think maybe one of the things that excites me so much about this book is that I think often about comics as a, a verb, uh, things obviously, and noun things, but they're also a way of thinking and a way of working. And that's what this book stuff, this book, this book seems very live on the page, not least because, Steve, you know, you often, often in the book are saying, yeah, I've got this great idea, we're going to have composting toilets that walk through the streets. Oh, wait a minute, I've just had a thought that might have a... You're continually pushing forward into the idea and then thinking, oh, and then saying rather to us, the reader, oh, actually, I have had a couple of thoughts about making that better or some reservations. So it feels very live on the page, I guess. Thank you. Let's talk about the mechanical megafauna, the lead-off project. I was just noticing on your website that you actually did build. There is a megafauna in Melbourne made out of old shovel diggers. Yes, that's a diprotodon. So diprotodon, for those of you who haven't come across diprotodon, diprotodon were beautiful, large, lumbering, van-sized wombats that lived up until about thirty to 40,000 years ago right across Australia. Diprotodon, the name means die to proto front, don't 
teeth. So diprotodons have these great big, beautiful buck teeth, and they dug like modern-day wombats, and they were just gentle creatures that roamed around and ate grass and uh, produced vast amounts of manure. And they were ecosystem engineers, so they bred so much of this manure that they, you know, they kick-started ecosystems. They they dispersed their nutrients and seeds, and they were really in, an incredible part of the ecosystem. And of course, so the chapter that you mentioned, the Mechanical Megafauna Project, starts off looking at how we replace the the ecosystem engineering function of all of these lost wonderful beasts that we once had and and also lost beasts that that we still have but just uh, not in cities. So the book starts with with some science on just how many kangaroos and and, and wallabies and wombats and, and 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 other marsupials of all different sizes and, and reptiles and birds there would have been in Melbourne. So, so you know, how many are there now? How many would there have been a few hundred years ago, 500 years ago? And how many would there have been before humans? So if you go right back, you know, what, what, what is the effect we've had on these, on these population numbers? And then is there a way with technology that we can replicate the ecosystem engineering function of all of those lost animals? Is there a way, Steve? Is there a way? There is. There is indeed. And, and that, that, that is where mechanical megafauna come in. And the sculpture uh, that you mentioned, that's a diprotodon. It's a mechanical diprotodon. It was a collaboration between myself and an a, and a amazing steel fabricator called Sam Deal. Uh, Sam works up in Castlemaine. And he and I, so I designed the whole thing and modelled it up and, and, and worked out you know, how to build it and got all the engineering right. And then he scoured recycling yards looking for all the right bits the sort of excavator parts, so the mouth is made of a couple of huge excavator buckets, and the and many other parts of the of the body are made of of excavator parts. And um, he and I worked during lockdown um, with him scouring uh, recycle yards with his you know with me on video call and me you know checking out the buckets. Oh, that could work, and he'd measure something up, and I'd quickly model it and see if it could work. So that was a, a wonderful collaboration. But that is one of my ideas from the book. So the, the, the mechanical diprotodon is an animal that's designed to autonomously roam around Victoria and provide the same functionality that the real flesh diprotodons did. And so that's digging and pooing. Digging and pooing, that's right. Yeah, and churning, yeah. you know, churning up the soil like a like a four-legged tractor and just stirring things up to, yes. to, to just increase the fertility of the landscape for ecosystems to, to, to just supercharge ecosystems. And in the book, in the Mechanical Megafauna chapter, we talk about how we could bring back all kinds of animals in a similar way. And we also talk about the opportunity to use what experts called humanure. So humanure, of course, is the manure from us humans. And it yep. just so happens that all the humanure that's produced by all the humans in the world, all 8 billion of us, roughly equals the manure that has been lost from all the animals that we've wiped out over the last 10,000 or so years. How very interesting. That's the iron law of coincidence coming into play. To allow you to visualise that, Bernard, roughly two-thirds of an Egyptian pyramid, the Great Giza pyramid, okay, two-thirds tall, and you've got, that's the amount, a great big steaming pile, nearly the size of a pyramid, is what we collectively produce per day. And of course, when you compost it, that, that pile shrinks down because it's all broken down into nice soil. But the, the, the whole mechanical megafauna chapter is based upon, you know, how could we, using high-tech machinery, 
take that incredible source of nutrients from humans and spread that back into the ecosystems and, and of course, do it in a safe way where we don't kill people or kill anyone else. Safe, Steve, but, but not, not too safe. You know, I think one of the things that you say in the book is I think danger makes us smarter, is that? There's a lot of research that suggests that as our environments become safer, that we have less ideas. We like ideas, so <laughs> we, you know, thus it follows that we like a bit of danger. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay, so that's one of uh, numerous projects in the book. And another one is the Chicken Castle Project, mm. in which you suggest a contract might be enacted with the world's... 33, 33. billion chickens. So one of the themes of this book is that I look at how we can feed humans in a way that is is more sustainable and and kinder to the planet on on many levels so you know we have 33 billion chickens in the world the vast majority of them are locked up in cages one of the projects is looking at well hey why not do a deal with them you know they've they've provided us with a lot over a long period of time and maybe it's time to free the chickens so um chickens are are essentially tiny little megafauna in the way they behave. They have powerful legs. They, they produce a very rich manure. They are incredible diggers. So they, they churn up gardens. They really help supercharge uh, the fertility of the soil. And they're a great help to us in rewilding cities. So they, they are fantastic for small spaces like rooftops and balconies and anywhere where, where you want to kind of add a bit of wildness or add a, add a rich garden and you don't have the space to, you know, heli-lift a, a steel diprotodon onto. So um, <laughs> so, so the, the basic deal is, why don't, why don't we give chickens a break? Why don't we give them every rooftop in the world? So if we imagine that from now on, every rooftop in the world is the domain of chickens. Chickens own the rooftops and chickens are citizens. We give them, we give them the same rights that we have ourselves. If we were to do this, the amount of manure that we'd get from these chickens is just absolutely vast. And, and you'll read in the book, there's a lot of really cool things that people are doing with chicken manure, um, such as using it to grow algae for, um, for food, for fuel, um, and also to make bioplastics out of. And that's, that's a really important part of this book because we look at we look at future materials that can help us transform cities really, really quickly. So if you imagine millions of 3D printers in cities whirring away to transform our world, one of the things we can run these printers on is, in place of fossil fuel-based plastics, chicken manure, algae-based bioplastics. And so in the um, Chicken Castle project, putting the chickens on the roofs of every, every dwelling and, and business place in the world, one ends up with gourmet solar-cooked sky-delivered omelettes as one of the benefits. Part of the deal, part of the contract, is that chickens not only receive every rooftop in the world, chickens also receive all food scraps from humans. So that's one of the deals. So you help us transform buildings into jungles and we'll give you, we'll give you food scraps and we'll, we'll give you the roof space. So the chickens get a delightful life up, up on the roofs. They get their own little pockets of wilderness that are, you know, safe from foxes and other, other predators. And, and we get this, this incredible rewilding. The problem is you have to get food to the chickens. And, and, and seeing as many of our buildings are, are rather taller than, than we have the, the ability to throw a handful of, of food scraps, we need various other devices. So, so here we have the design process. You, you start to see how we one seemingly perfect solution leads to other uh, design inquiries. So in order to get food scraps to chickens on tall buildings, you need catapults. You need, I mean, you need a lot of infrastructure. The chickens seem to be getting a lot at this point. What are we getting from the chickens? The only real way to get 
food scraps to chickens on skyscrapers is to use very, very large catapults. And, and you'll see in the book that we, we have a catapultologue, which is a, basically a, a, an inventory of all the different types of catapults that have, have ever been invented by humans and, and, and the ways in which we could modify them, you know, to help chickens out. But because you've got to, you know, encourage people to save up their scraps and to, you know, pack them into compost balls and to, you know, load these into giant catapults and so forth, cart the material down to the local public catapult, you need to offer some kind of a reward. And so sky-delivered solar-cooked omelets is just one idea for, for a reward system. To me, you're really sweetening the deal. And this is a book of futurism, but unlike a lot of other futurism that we read at the moment, it is a very, very joyful and imagination-engaged uh, future. So it's a, it's a book that is a great thing for young people who might be feeling a bit overwhelmed with the sort of climate catastrophe, climate doom message that is the dominant story about the future. It's a very hopeful book and gleeful uh, book. And not for no reason. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we could transform our planet vastly, vastly faster than we perceive we can. So in the same way that it was utterly impossible for people a number of hundred years ago to imagine how quickly we would trash the planet, if we all get together and work on this, uh, we can transform the planet vastly faster than most people believe is possible. And, and rewilding all around the world, projects are showing this. They're showing that that when you when you take a step back and when you put the right situation in place for ecosystems, they will thrive, they will recover, they will bounce back really, really quickly. And that, and that is what has filled me full of inspiration while I've been working on this book, it, it, just reading about projects around the world and how quickly nature can recover. Yeah, certainly that is, uh, towards the end of the book, quite a dark zone. Like it's a very, I think as you ex- described it to me, it's a very um, pastel neon palette this book, you know, it's really, it really pops. But then there's this very, there's this bit at the end where you, your character sort of goes into, oh, maybe am I fooling myself, basically, you know. And that's a very important part of the book to, to have in there, that voice of, not of reason, but the voice of, of pessimism, I guess. Yeah, and look, you know, this book took me so long to do, and really the book, it it does closely follow my journey, learning about rewilding and developing all of these inventions. And and after a couple of years, it was, I I remember, um, around the time of the fires, you know, 2018, 2019, and the, you know, the sky was, I was in Melbourne and the sky was was darkened out with with ash. You know, I, I really, I went through a period where I just, I didn't know how, I could actually complete this book. It has been a struggle at times to to keep that optimism, but but uh, you know this book has shown me that there is so so much to be to be excited about and to be hopeful for. We just cannot afford to stop working on this. We you know we have to keep on innovating and and fighting for nature and and, and fighting for the planet because there is just so much going on out there that is awesome and inspiring. Yeah. And, and once you dip your toe in the world of rewilding, it is just amazing. It transforms the whole, the whole body. It really, really does. It's, it's very a very full book. There's lots of images, there's lots of colour, and there is a lot of drawing in it. And I thought, I was thinking this morning about drawing as an activity, but also drawing as activism 
drawing it, like if I put it down, like the boldness with which you draw Paris and London and, and Tokyo transformed, like those, those pictures, those panoramas that are in the book are enormous pictures But just it made me think of when you draw something, you are really, it is an engineering feat. You're you're saying, okay, so how do I represent the Eiffel Tower in the background and these creatures moving through the streets is an eloquent act of activism, I think, that drawing into being really those, those, those vistas. Very, very, very nice. Can we talk a little bit about the incorporation of comics language into so there are speech balloons in the book. There is this iconic Steve Mushin character who leads us through wonderful uh, scientists who you meet, the surfing algae scientist, and so people who you've made friendships with and who conversations with about these uh, imaginings and actions. Yeah, and look, I. I am just so incredibly grateful to the dozens of people who have joined me on this project. And I didn't start off, it, it really just began in my mind. It was a book of my, my sketchbooks. It was, it, was a, it was a book of sketches, like, like a giant sketchbook. And I, I didn't imagine myself as a character. I, I didn't realize that I would travel around meeting and, and jamming ideas with scientists and engineers. And, and certainly when I started reaching out, to various people to, you know, initially just do a bit of fact-checking. I, I had no idea that people would, would would be so enthusiastic and would, you know, would join me. I, I mean, I, I don't have any scientific credentials. I, I'm an industrial designer. I've, I've got a background in, in, in working on sustainability projects, environmental engineering projects. I didn't think that I would have people joining me on the project in the way that they have. So it's just been really wonderful. So some of these people I just cold called. These are university professors and mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and biologists, and, and they're, they're all over the world. And some of these people have joined me for years now on this project, me working on calculations and sending them a spreadsheet and them, you know, correcting my work and suggesting papers that I should go and read, helping me fact check, you know, and very much being a part of the design process. So so making suggestions that then take my thoughts in a different direction and, 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 and really, really adding a, a lot of... Of richness to the you know to the process i agree with that and that it does enrich the book because yes it would be great if it was just steve and he's just saying i've got these amazing ideas and here they are but because it's sort of it's buttressed it's buttressed by these other people who you you know that's that classic conversation where somebody says yes but or yes and and then they add to it and as you're as you're just saying now you need to engineer those thoughts back into the particular project look i think that you you have really already been telling us what the philosophy behind this book is of, of outrageous ideas of of a politics of enthusiasm, but you overtly address this as well in the book and and say, you know, you quote Einstein who says, if at first an idea is not absurd, then there is no hope for it. And numerous other great thinkers talking about this idea of that we exercise our minds and our capacity to be in the world by pushing, by pushing things beyond what's reasonable or what's... And, and you talk about, yeah, that, that danger of the autopilot way of thinking. That's right. So so as so that the book begins with a prologue and the, the title of the prologue is Ludicrous Ideas Are Boot Camp for Brains. 
I drew on some work by a Harvard University professor, Dr. Shelley Carson, and she talks about, and I'm quoting here from her book, by forming mental images of highly unlikely scenarios, you are training your brain to think outside the proverbial box. The more you practice what-ifing, the more easily you will be able to visualize unusual scenarios and the more likely you are to come up with ideas when you need to generate a novel solution to a problem. She's really referring to a process that philosophers and engineers and scientists have, have, have played around with for a long time, and that is that sometimes in order to solve complex ideas, to sort of make conceptual breakthroughs, being playful with absurd ideas is really, really helpful. So, you know, I talk about autopilots in the book. As we get older, especially, we tend to limit our thinking. If you think about riding a bike, um, you know, at first when you, you ride a bike, it's it, it's difficult. You, you have to think very carefully about pedaling and about your balance. But as you become more proficient, the, the whole act of riding a bike becomes a kind of an autopilot function. You, you, we can now jump on a bike and off we go, we ride. And you don't stop and, and think, you know, if you were to stop riding, you, you really don't have any memory of whether you changed gears or, or what you were doing with your body as you rode that bike because it's all become subconscious. And so much of our world, we navigate kind of in a, in a subconscious state that I call autopilot in the book. And broadly, it's thought that by playing around with outrageous ideas, we, we sort of challenge ourselves to sort of peek around the curtain, to um, we, we, we become more open to thinking about things differently. And so, you know, having a, a session with friends, with other designers and engineers, jamming ideas, you know, just to be playful, um, talking about an absurd idea like flying bikes or, or, or something else, it allows you to, it, it puts you in the right frame of mind to, to potentially stumble upon novel ideas to, to solve real world problems that you're currently struggling with. Yeah. Steve, just wrapping up now, but I, I think that in Ultra Wild, you've given that space, that space of play and imagination and thinking around and looking behind the curtain and making, building a new world, put it on the page. And I, I congratulate you. Thank you very much for persisting. I'm sure our readers at uh, readings and um, kids of readers at readings are going to really enjoy this book for, for, for years and find it a provocation to the imagination and to their, and to their lives. Yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bernard. Cheers, and thanks to readings. I love readings. We all do. Ultra Wild is available via all reading stores and at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.